Let us go to the Lord with our prayer of illumination. Let us pray. O God, our judge, save us from cheap excuses and easy answers. Speak your word to us so that we may measure our lives by your truth and not by the standards of this world. Through Jesus Christ, our sure defense. Amen. The scripture reading from the Old Testament this morning is from Leviticus, chapter 19. We begin with verses 1 and 2, and we continue on with verses 9 through 18. And Leviticus chapter 19 is found on page 105 and 106 of the Pew Bibles, if you wish to join along. Leviticus chapter 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And to verse 9. Then you, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes off your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another, and you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor, you shall not steal, and you shall not keep yourself the way, for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart any of any one of your kin. You shall not reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. So first words are important. And I have been thinking a lot lately about my, what my first words to you should be uh, from this pulpit. And I wanted to choose them very carefully. 
And the more I thought about those first words, the more obvious it became to me that my first words to you should be, thank you. Thank you to the pastor nominating committee who represented you so well, who represented Christ so well in the invitation and welcome that they have extended to me and my family. Thank you to Charles Elliott and Danny Massey who brought their considerable pastoral gifts to bear, to answer tough questions, to give sage advice, and to lead so well during the interim period. And thank you to all of you who have embraced me and Stephanie and Molly and Kate with with such warmth and hope for this new day and this new chapter in the life of Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church. I've also thought a lot about the first capital W word that we should share, meaning the first words from Scripture that will help us start this journey out together on the right foot. Once again, I wanted to choose that word carefully. And once again, the natural choice eventually presented itself. So I invite you now to listen to the word of God that was given to the church through the Apostle Paul as I read from the 13th chapter of his first letter to the congregation at Corinth. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end, for we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, And love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the world of homiletics, 
which is really just a fancy theological word for preaching, there is a great and long-standing debate over the benefits of sermon titles. Now, those who are leery of them argue that a poorly constructed sermon title can work harm. It can confuse the hearer. It can set expectations that are not delivered and therefore create disappointment. It can, in a variety of ways, hinder the preacher in his or her task. But for good or ill, I have always used sermon titles and kind of liked sermon titles because I believe when a sermon title is chosen well, it can set the tone, set the sermon out on a, on a good direction and deepen the experience. But I will admit that I understand those who worry about them because I will admit that they can be dangerous when they're not done right. And that danger is especially keen when the pastor has to turn in a title for the sermon before, you know, when the bulletin is due, but well before that sermon is actually written, which, let's be honest, is almost always the case and is certainly the case for me this week. But I thought the greatest thing seemed to be safe when I think about the lofty way in which Paul talks about love in the church and love in the world and in the life of faith, I went with that, knowing well that first words are important. But I'll confess to you that in these past few weeks, as I've been thinking and preparing about this first sermon, I have been working and laboring under another title, a working title, if you will. And that title was... The night Jack Evans asked me to go steady. (laughs) Now, obviously, I'm going to have to flesh that out a little bit for you, and I will do that. But I expect now you understand what I mean when I say that sermon titles can indeed be dangerous. But back to these words of Paul, these almost two familiar words, that love is patient, that love is kind and not envious or boastful, or rude. Many of us would probably say that our strongest associations with these ancient words relates to weddings. Because if you're like me, that's where we hear them most often, on those kinds of happy occasions. And they certainly strike a wonderful tone and serve as excellent first words for people who are pledging to honor one another in life and in love. However, while I think this passage is very, very appropriate for a wedding, Paul actually had a very different context in mind when he first wrote them. When you set out to read the book of 1 Corinthians, it does not take very long to realize that Paul is writing to a congregation that has had its fair share of issues and disagreements and conflicts. There are factions within the Corinthian congregation. And those factions are disagreeing passionately over things like idol meat, whether it's okay to eat it, marriage, whether it's okay to enter into it, spiritual gifts, and whether it is okay to practice them openly. As Paul, the pastor, tries his best to address these issues and resolve these conflicts in ways that honor Christ, He pauses in the midst of that writing 
to reflect on the centrality of love in all of those issues. Love, he seems to be saying, is the strategy. It is the balm. It is the law and requirement. And it is the one true mark of the church really being the church. So if we want to know whether we're doing church right, Paul says, look for the love. Hope for the love. Grab hold of the love of Christ in all things. So these familiar words of love struck me as perfect for this morning in two ways. First, because this day really is kind of like a wedding. And secondly, because this day is most certainly about the church trying its best to be the kind of church that Christ envisions it to be. So let's take a look at the marriage metaphor first. Anyone who has ever participated in a pastoral search process, either as a member of a committee that's tasked with going out and finding a new pastor or a pastor candidate who is conversing with that committee, they'll all tell you that the whole thing begins to feel a whole lot like dating. And it follows the same kind of pattern. The committee, after all the job descriptions and theological statements have been written and rewritten and proposed and approved and posted, and the names of these candidates begin to pour in from a variety of places, after all that, the committee begins to look over the field of potential suitors and tries to figure out which ones are drawing their gaze the most. And with each candidate, the team is asking itself, does this candidate have the kind of qualities that I think we're looking for and needing in a pastor? And at the same time, the candidate is going through a very similar process about the church. Am I attracted by this opportunity? Could I get along well with this congregation? It's all relational. And then from both sides, as things kind of progress and get more serious, the questions kind of morph into, do I kind of like him? Or might I really like him? Is she the right one for me? And this is exactly how things go. And back in the spring when I had my first conversation with your pastor nominating committee, it was via Skype. That's the day, we, day and age we live in, Right. And I thought it was a pretty good first date. It seemed like we kind of liked each other. And conversation was easy, but also meaningful. We laughed a lot, but we also talked about important things. We seemed to have some of those important things in common. And that good spirit continued over the next few weeks. And so we decided that we would, you know, take it to the next level. That we would meet at the Red Drum on Coleman, and we would break bread together, and we would deepen our conversation. And as far as I could tell, the evening seemed to be going pretty well. And then it was time for Jack Evans, who's one of the co-chairs of the committee. The committee had kind of taken turns going around the table, and they were asking me questions, and it became Jack Evans' time to talk. And he just leaned over the table, and he said, Peter, let's just say... We were to go steady, <laughs> shockingly forward, uh, right? And uh, you should have seen the other members of the committee in their faces, and they all just kind of went like this, as if they weren't really surprised that Jack was saying this, but they were kind of shocked that he was saying this at the same time. But the thing was, 
I knew what he meant. I knew exactly what he meant. And it made pretty good sense in that moment when, at least from my perspective, a pastoral connection was already taking shape. So two Sundays ago, we closed the circle when we all gathered back at the red drum and so we could celebrate the way that God has brought us together. And that night, Jack gave me this. That's right, he pinned me. <laughs> he made it official, and it's, he pinned me with the, uh, with the sign of the fish, the symbol of the fish, that sign of Christian friendship that is as old as the church itself. So here we are at the culmination of this process, and really what is happening now is kind of like a marriage. Pastor and congregation are agreeing to give this thing a shot for real, for the long term. But if we're honest with each other, and I think we should always be honest with one another, we would have to say that it is, at best, an arranged marriage, right? The truth is that we really don't know each other that well, at least not yet. One of my favorite scenes from the movie, When Harry Met Sally, doesn't actually have Billy Crystal or Meg Ryan in it. It's one of the interviews with actual married couples that is interspersed throughout the movie. And this one interview is an older Asian couple, and they're reflecting back on their courtship. And in their culture, marriages were arranged by parents and elders in the town. And in the interview, the husband does all the talking. And these are his words. He says, a man came to me and said, I have found a nice girl for you. She lives in the next village, and she is ready for marriage. We were not supposed to meet until the wedding, but I wanted to make sure. So I sneak into her village, hid behind a tree, watch her washing the clothes. I think if I don't like the way she looks, I don't marry her. But she looked very nice to me, so I said, okay. And at the time of the interview, they had just celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary. So in much the same way, some folks came to me and said, we have found a nice church for you. She lives in the next state. <laughs> she sounded nice, but I had to make sure. So I snuck into your village. The old village, and it was May 6th, and it was late in the day, because we weren't supposed to see each other before all this, right? It was all secret. So I kind of slip in. It wasn't dark, but it might as well have been. I slipped into the old post house very quietly and unnoticed. I wasn't hiding behind a tree, but I was there to get a peek, to see if I thought that this might be right to see if it felt like God really might be calling me. And it was on that night that I began to see this congregation and this community with my own eyes, and it was just a glimpse. But you all looked very nice. <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> and I stand in this pulpit for the first time, and I have to say it feels really good to me. It feels like the Holy Spirit is truly here among you, and that is a beautiful thing to see and to feel. And I really am convinced that God wants us to be the church together, you and me here in Mount Pleasant, 
And as we join together in that holy life, my hope is that these words of Paul will fall upon us with all the power and all the blessing and all the challenge with which they fell upon the Corinthians just shy of 2,000 years ago. And that we will hear the clear charge of Scripture saying that whatever we might do from here on out, in word or in deed, that we will clothe ourselves with love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And my pledge to you is that I will try with all my heart to love you with this kind of love. And I hope that you will try with all of your heart to love me the same way, because at the end of the day, That is what it means for us to be disciples. It really is that easy and that hard. At every wedding I do, when I preside over a wedding, I include a very specific prayer for the couple. And it may sound familiar to you. The prayer is this. Give them the grace when they hurt each other to recognize and confess their fault, and to seek each other's forgiveness and yours. Note that the prayer does not say if they hurt each other. It says when they hurt each other, because it will happen. I will try my best not to hurt you, just as I know you will try your best not to hurt my feelings, but it will happen anyway. It will happen because when flawed human beings are in in relationship with one another, we will end up hurting each other in some ways, even though that is not what we hope to do or set out to do. And I think when we realize this, we begin to see the radical nature of Paul's discourse on love, which he offered to an ancient church that was, in many ways, at war with itself. These are revolutionary words because they challenge us to be different. Different from the rest of the world in how we treat one another, how we forgive one another, even when we have hurt one another. They call us to an amazingly high standard to live with patience and with kindness, to resist the temptation to be boastful or arrogant, to avoid insisting on our own way, to rejoice in the truth. And as if that wasn't revolutionary or earth-shaking enough, Paul yanks the rug out from under those things that we tend to be the most proud of in the church. For the Corinthians, they put great stock in charismatic gifts like speaking in tongues, in prophecy, in knowledge and wisdom. They thought the highest honor that a Christian could have was to give one's life in martyrdom for Christ to physically suffer in the same way that Christ physically suffered. And Paul did not deny the validity or value of any of those gifts and things. He just clothed them with one huge caveat. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand every mystery, have all knowledge, if I have so much faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. 
if I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body into martyrdom, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Circumstance, fate, and the power of the Holy Spirit have brought us together so that we might do our best to be faithful partners in Christ's church. But God wants us to remember one radical truth as we begin together. We might have the most glorious worship in Christendom with the most uplifting music and the loftiest prayers and the most eloquent words and sermons, but if we do not offer it all in love, it will just be noise. Clanging, gonging, worldly cacophony. We might have the most beloved sanctuary with the most storied history in the most blessed and sun-kissed corner of God's green earth, right? But if we are not reflecting the full love of Christ in all that we do, if we're not trusting each other and giving each other grace and forgiveness in the same way that Christ offers those things to us, then Paul says we are nothing. We might have the most organized church programs, the most skilled and accomplished staff, the most balanced of all budgets, but if we are not loving each other as Christ has loved us, then in God's eyes, we're not really doing anything. We're gaining nothing. There is a reason that the church has always been described as the bride of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that he might come among us and take on flesh and live with us so that we might not only have life but have it abundantly and as Christ returned to the Father and ascended to heaven, he promised that he would be with us always, even to the end of the ages. And he gave the Holy Spirit as a gift to the church so that the church might remain as his hands and his feet and his heart in the world. Faith abides here. Hope abides here. But in Christ's eyes, the greatest thing that happens here is love. Christ loves you and me with his whole heart, with his whole mind, with his very life. And it is out of that sacrificial love that he whispers to us still, hey, let's just say we were to go steady. What do you think that you and I might be able to do together? May God give us the strength and the courage and most importantly, the love to find that out. Amen.